says that it's on. Now you got me? Well, now you can hear me. Um, I teach at Indiana Wesleyan University. Um, I'm an, uh, I teach mainly online. Um, I got my PhD in uh, uh, missiology, and I'm, what you, uh, I'm kind of an odd duck in that sense. I'm what you call a, a historic missiologist. Now, anyone know what a missiology is? Missiology is just the study of missions. So you want to send somebody overseas, and they want to they want to go reach the Bora Bora tribe in Bora Bora. Well, there you go. That's where you that's where you, that's where you send a missionary to. And so missiology is really the study of missions. So I did something really that hadn't been done before, or at least not often. I did the history of missions. So I did something that uh, most missionaries, what they do is they look at the future, what tribe they can reach next, where they want to go. And I asked a different question. I said, well, how did we get here? Well, we got here through missions. So I looked at early Christian missions, particularly the book of First Clement, which I know you don't want to hear about, but that's okay. Um, how did the church take over? How did the church go from a, a group of 12 people to where in 312, Constantine can declare it uh, uh, tolerated in religion, and by 370, it can be the religion of the Roman state. How did that happen? How did that occur? Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pieces that move with that. I wish we could, you know, do a six-week study on the 300 years of Christianity, but what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about, um, or this week, we're going to discuss how the church moved through the book of Acts and how missions looked, what it looked like in the book of Acts. Now, why should you care? That's, that's the, obviously the next question. Why should we care? We're 2,000 years removed from them. What in the world, why should it matter to us? Well, um, it matters for this very reason. The world in which we are living in today right now. Maybe some of you have heard the term globalization. Who's heard that term? Globalizing world. What does it mean? Someone tell me what globalization means. Okay, being aware of what's going on in other countries. Is it simply awareness of what's going on with other countries? It's a connectedness with other countries. You're, you're, you're right on. We live in a globalized world which we kind of go, the things that are happening in Africa are impacting us in different ways. Just as a brief example, there's a little thing going on in maybe a country you've called Ukraine, right? Anyone ever heard of that? What's going on right now? We're all smiling because we all know what's going on right now. It's practically everything we ever hear. Um, how many of you go to the pump and put your your, um, you know, handle into your car and pump your gas. Yeah, have, you, has you, have you noticed anything strange in the last, oh, say, 8, 12 weeks? Anyone noticed anything? <laughs> right? Now, how, how in the world, what, what's going on with that? How, what? Is there a correlation between what happened in Ukraine and what's going on right here, right now, with our gas pump? <laughs> you'll, you'll hear people say that it's all Putin's fault. Absolutely. That the supply has been cut because Russia's at war. Um, we chopped off our pipeline deliberately. Does anyone remember that? 
I am not making any kind of political statement at all. This is just what, what happened. We decided to shut off our pipeline production. And so that pipeline production has to come from somewhere. And where did that production come from? Russia. We live in a globalizing world where the things that happen on the other side of the world that we're not a single one of us Americans are getting killed in this war, but all of us are kind of feeling the pinch at the pump. That's globalization, how the world is interconnected. The world has not been this interconnected in a way with this many groups of people really since the Roman Empire. And so the early church that ran around in the Roman Empire has a lot more, we have a lot more in common with that early Christian movement than we realize. Because in Rome, there were hundreds of different people groups who were running around all through Rome. Rome was a cosmopolitan city. There were people from Africa, there were people from the Middle East, there were people from modern-day Turkey, there were people from Germany, there were people from the Russian steppes. They were all living in Rome and all interacting with Rome. What would, you, what would you call that kind of a city today? Cosmopolitan. We have not had a world like the world that we're living in right now until from, from the early church on. So the early church has more in common with us than we realize. And we, are, we have more in common with them than we realize. For one thing, what we're experiencing is not really that unique. It's happened before, and it's happened with other people. It's just really hard when it happens to you, right? I mean, that's how that works, right? You have kids. You hear about other people's children who kids get hurt or they get cancer or they get illness, right? Everyone's heard that, and you're like, oh, I'm very sad, I'm very sorry. And then it happens to your kid, and what happens? It's it, right. It turns your whole world upside down because it's always more traumatic when something that you know can happen happens to you. So that's what we're experiencing right now. Okay, we're experiencing things that many other cultures have experienced and have gone through. We're just experiencing it to us, and it's very unnerving, very dissettling. So that was my five-minute pitch for why you should not get up and leave. Does anybody want to get up and leave? <laughs> sure. All right, so um, what I have learned in um, 25 years of, of um, life and ministry is that very few people care about what you have to say until they know who you are. So I'm going to take about... Let's say I take about seven minutes. Can you handle seven minutes where I tell you a little bit about myself? Who I am, where I'm from, my experiences, kind of a person you're looking at. Does that work? All right, so my name is Mike Brown. I grew up in the Wesleyan Church. Anyone know the Wesleyan Church? Yay! And we're all Methodists here is what I was told, yes? Okay, so help me out. Uh, we have, I'm Wesleyan. Baptist. Independent. Nazarene, okay, so you're like kissing cousins with us. Nazarenes and Wesleyans, we're like really close to each other. Anyone else? Lutheran, oh great, good to have Lutherans. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> Lutheran plus, okay, yes. Missionary Baptist, or just missionary? 
just missionary. Okay. All right. Well, I grew up in the in the Wesleyan Church, um, small little town. My the church that I grew up in had about fifty people in it most of my life. Near the very um, end, when I moved off to college, it had about seventy-five people. So we grew. That was pretty exciting. Um, I went to Indiana Wesleyan University, and I was going to be a history teacher. Um, that's what I wanted to do with my life. And when I went to a camp, not very dissimilar from this, Connie's actually been to that camp. When I went to that camp, I had an experience where I felt God was calling me into ministry. And so I said, okay, yes, I went into ministry. And uh, actually, uh, because I was so heartedly shifted, God actually allowed me to triple major. So I triple majored in history, religion, and philosophy, and Christian ministries. So got out. Um, but what I learned uh, during, during my last semester was people don't care if you have one degree or three degrees. They just care that you have one. So it was going to cost me one more semester to get out with all three, and I said, oh, I'm just going to get out. So technically, I have a history degree. Uh, I ministered in the Wesleyan Church for four years, and then um, I met my wife, Krista, in uh, 95. We got married in the summer, in the, in the fall of 96. We have three children, Benjamin, Isabel, and Shay. That's going to change in a minute. I promise you guys know the truth, so I'll, we'll get to that. There's a little inside joke. You'll get it in a second. Uh, uh, then something happened on uh, 9-11 of 2001. Does anyone remember what happened? Your daughter got her wisdom teeth out. That's right. Those planes crashing into buildings kind of changed our world, and I had a four-year-old, three-year-old son at the time. And ministry hadn't been going all that great for me, so I dropped out of ministry, signed up for the military, and went off and served in the military for 10 years as, a, uh, as an officer in the, in the infantry, believe it or not. So I served in Iraq. I served in Bosnia. Uh, I was actually involved in Operation Katrina. Do you remember, who remembers Katrina? My wife, uh, uh, we were talking, and, and uh, when Katrina was going on, and the levees were breaking and everything. Remember that? It was all kind of crazy down there. My wife says, hey, you know, there's things going nuts down there in Louisiana. Do you think you're going to get activated with that? I said, no, the Louisiana National Guard's got their own thing. They'll be fine. Literally 10 minutes later, my commander picked up, and we got shipped off to Louisiana. So I spent uh, almost six weeks in Louisiana almost helping people. That's what I say. If you want to hear that story, I'll tell it another time. Um, and then I spent a, a year spin, spinning up as a battalion S4, getting our unit ready for deployment to Iraq, and I spent a year in Iraq. During that time, I also got my master's in divinity and my master's in ministry. And uh, so when I came back from Iraq, I... Um, uh, started a small, or was involved in a small church uh, up in Kingsford Heights, Indiana, which is not far from your borders, no Val near Valpo. You guys know where Valpo is, right across the border. So spent uh, four, five years there as a pastor at that little church, and in that church, we ran across five little kids who, they were in the foster care system, and they kind of had a traumatic experience. They'd been in and out of foster care for almost six years at that point, and so, um, my wife and I were trying to figure out what we were going to do with my 10 years military experience and master's in divinity and my love of education. I just can't seem to stop learning. I'm one of those addicted crack addicts to education. My wife says I'm not allowed to do it anymore. So we were trying to figure out what we were going to do with that. And so we, moved, we were going to move back to Marion and um, work on my Ph.D., and um, we decided to adopt those five children. So we ended up taking those five kids from the foster care system and engrafted those five children into our family, which was good because um, if I hadn't been a military officer, uh, I don't think we would have survived. 
because they were from ages 13 all the way down to six. So we didn't adopt young, young babies. We adopted older kids. Oh, we did. We had three children. Um, by, the, by the time we decided to adopt those five. And so we ended up moving from a, a family of a five to a family of ten virtually overnight. Well, like literally overnight, I guess, is <laughs> really how it went. And so we've had them for seven years now. Um, 2015 is when the official adoption came through. And so um, while we had those five, I decided to work on my Ph.D. in missiology, which is uh, how we got to this point. So um, that's my life experience. So I've been around a bit. I've served overseas. I've been in other contexts and other cultures. Um, done a lot of different stuff. I have a lot of different experiences that kind of don't fit very well with a traditional pastor, if that makes sense. Um, but I don't regret any of it because it's made me, um, I relate to a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. So um, that's who I am. Any, is there any questions? I'll, I'll answer any questions you have. I took just about, what was that, four minutes, five minutes? Krista, actually, <laughs> you guys are going to love this. We have just recently purchased a, an Airbnb uh, for about, it's a, it's a, about a $400,000 business. So my wife runs that with our best friends. So we're running a business. Uh, it, it's an Airbnb for Indiana Wesleyan. So she's back there running that. Could not come up here this week. I only have one kid who's here this week. That's Isabel. She's my youngest. So, Any other questions? She works for Indiana Wesleyan, by the way. She works in the alumni department. All right. How exciting is this? No questions. Nobody wants to say, I know you're all dying to know if I got hit by an IED in Iraq. No, I did not. Thank God for that. Well, anyway, so that's, that's where I'm coming from. That's the person that I am. Um, what I want to do now is we're going to open with some prayer, and we're going to look at Philippians 3. Father, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for this group that's here. I ask now that you would help us to be your people, help us to recognize what it means to be followers of you and to serve you. We thank you and we praise you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Now, we're not going to be there long because this is going to be our weak verse. What I mean by that is, Almost everything that we're going to be looking at over the next five days is going to come back to this. Okay? It's going to be, we're going to be returning to this idea. So in a lot of ways, what you can say is the next five days is a commentary on Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is Paul writing to the people of Philippi. And he's talking to them about citizenship. Um, I want to talk about what it means to be a citizen of heaven. What in the world is Paul talking about about our citizenship is in heaven. And what we're going to do over the next few weeks is what we're, few weeks, few days, because uh, you guys weren't planning on being here that long. Uh, we're going to return to this verse and we're going we're gonna to give more layers to it. Uh, what's it mean to be a citizen to you as an American citizen? What's it mean? Briefly. 
gives us rights and privileges. And what? To vote. Absolutely. Gives us protection. Responsibility is of protecting those rights. Good. It gives us a, feel, a sense of belonging, a connectedness to something larger than ourselves. Very good. Been adopted. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Are those what, if you were to grab a, a typical American citizen off the street and ask him these things, how far down this rabbit hole do you think they're going to go? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I think most of us are going to say things like, I get to vote, right? I have rights and privileges. It means if I go to a foreign country and I get in trouble, I can pick up my phone and call my embassy, right? That's probably about as far as it goes. That is not as far as it goes in terms of the ancient world. And we're going to discuss this more and more as we talk about it. Um, so we're going to start with Jesus, and we're going to talk about his mission first, and then we're going to move through the church. Does that make sense? All right, so Jesus' mission was threefold. Jesus came to restore Israel. Jesus came to initiate a new covenant of life. And Jesus came to redeem Israel out from under the dark powers which manipulated and controlled them. Those are three things that were Jesus' mission. We're going to break these, this idea down briefly. So as we know, uh, Jesus had a mission that lasted somewhere around three years and he was walking around Jerusalem Israel Judea Galilee teaching people and some of the things that got him in trouble was what did the Pharisees dislike him because he hung out with the poor that was not why they they they, they did not dislike him because he hung out with the poor who did he hang out with that they didn't like him hanging out with Sinners and tax collectors. Why is that? Well, Roman, they were Roman collaborators. They were taught to keep themselves pure. Do you know what it means to belong? What's it mean to belong? And I don't mean belong like I'm, I'm on a team, you know, here's the t-shirt. Like, like really belong. What's it mean to belong? You have to be accepted. How do you get accepted to, to belong? You've got to be vulnerable. Follow the rules. That's absolutely the truth. I'm sorry? Be willing to serve and submit. That is absolutely the truth. You all know what it's like to belong. How many of us have had jobs? I look at our, our age range here. I know I'm pushing up the, uh, I'm coming close to the average age here. How many of us have had jobs at work and you felt like you belonged at your job? I belong there, yeah? Tell me if you, if you think this sounds familiar, right? You go to work and there's that guy. You know the guy. You know that guy. He parks between two parking spots. He doesn't go between the lines, right? He parks with his wheel half over the other line. So that he doesn't just park in one spot. He's really parking in two spots. You know what that's, you know that guy, right? And you go inside and... 
look at you, how gracious you are. The rest of us are all saying what? I, <laughs> you don't care? You know what I'm talking about. How about this? Follow the rules. How about this guy? You go inside. You go, you're, you're at your desk. Maybe you guys were typing away at a desk. Maybe you worked on the line. I don't know what it was, but you got your break. And you get off of your break, and you go into the coffee room, right? And you go to grab the cup of coffee, and it's completely empty. And it's sat there scalded and burnt on the bottom. No one's ever had that experience? Yeah. And you saw the guy or gal who walked out three seconds before you walked in, and you know that they have a steaming hot cup of coffee, and what didn't they do? Refill it. Or at least take it off the burner, right? What are those? If you were to say, if someone were to come up to your work and say, okay, so I would like to know what it means to be a good, um, a good employee at this office. Do you think the first thing on that line would be make sure you take the coffee burner off of the coffee thing? No, that would not be the first. What would you, if you're sitting down with a prospective employee and you're talking to them and you say, and they say, what's it mean to belong here? You, you do not go, don't park between two parking spots. Make sure you fill up the coffee maker. And by the way, when it's time to work, actually go do your job. Right? Nobody does that. They say things like, make sure that you, you, you go into the punch-in at this time. You go and punch out at this time. Make sure you fill out. They're going to tell you very formal things, right? Do this, don't do this formally to get along at work. The reality is to belong at work, and I mean really belong, there are a, soul, a whole subset of rules. A whole subset of rules that if you tried to write them down, you could not. You only know them when what? When they're violated. And when they're violated, man, your blood pressure just goes up. It's, am I not talking anyone's language here? Oh, yeah. We all, this is like common human experience. In the military, um, we kind of called them pogues. Okay? What that meant was people who stayed on base didn't go outside the wire to take on danger. And then they wore all the stuff and wore all the tabs and expected to get all of the benefits that came from not having gone out or having gone out there. Right? There's a, there's a violation of that. Hey, we're all in this together, so you share in the danger together, so you share in all of the hard stuff together. Those are the rules of belonging. And if anyone tells you that their group doesn't have rules, they're lying. Okay? They're either naive enough to really believe that, or they don't recognize the underlying tone that lives underneath the reality of human experience. In human experiences, our lives are transactional. You want me to put my life on the line for you, then you demonstrate that you're willing to do the same, or why should I do that? Right? That's what it means to belong. To belong means you get the benefit of the doubt. And if you're a good guy and you park between the lines and you always replace the coffee pot and you're always helping somebody else who's in trouble in line and you're always doing this and you're always doing that and the boss comes down, think about this, and the boss comes down and says, we got to cut six of us loose. Now think about this because I know you've all had this experience. And they go to the guy that has parked between the lines and filled up the coffee and he's helped you out six or seven times and he's helped other people out, out six or times. He's not a great guy, but he does help. 
He's not a likable person, but he does what kind of he's supposed to do. And they come down the line, and they start, this guy's going, this guy's going. And you look at the line yourself of all the people who've been cut off, you go, yep, he deserved to go. Uh, yep, he does. And then you see his name or her name, right? You see that name and you do what? That's too bad. How come? Because he did well and he belonged and you knew he belonged. And you gave him the benefit of the doubt. You said, if anybody's going to get fired, let's not fire that guy. Let's fire the guy who doesn't belong. And this is what was going on with Jesus and those Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners. These Pharisees, tax collectors, and sinners were people who were basically not following the rules. These are Jews who are living basically in occupied land. Rome had come in there and they were sitting on top of them. They were everyday ordinary people and some of them capitulated. Tax collectors worked for Rome. The best illustration of what to think of a tax collector Think of them as a combination loan shark and IRS man. That's kind of what they were. They can break into your home. They can take your stuff. They can take any amount of money that they think you can pay. Now, here's a great question for you. Do you think those tax collectors went into their wealthy, powerful neighbors' homes and broke into their houses and took their stuff? Why not? Because they're, by definition, they're powerful, wealthy neighbors. I want them to invite me over. So how much do you think they charged them? Right at what the requirement was, right? That widow woman who was down the road, who had no one who was taking care of her, who had no one who was looking out for her, maybe he saw that she'd got an extra goat that year, Knew that she got an extra goat that year. What do you think he can do with her? He can go absolutely take that goat. So he's not going to take it from the wealthy, powerful guy. How come? Because there's no benefit in messing with that guy. But there's absolutely no downside messing with that widow. How come? Because there's nobody looking out for her. And that's who the tax collectors were. We have this image of Jesus that says, Jesus looked after the lowly and the outcast. That's absolutely true. Luke, chapter 15, talks about, gives us three parables. What are those three parables? Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Absolutely. Jesus gives us those three parables. Now, were all three of those parables about poor sheep, poor coins, or poor sons? Those are not what they were about. They were about lost coins, lost sheep lost sons and this is what Israel did not understand is that tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes they viewed them as people who were outside they were people who did not belong they should not get the benefit of the doubt and you know what they weren't wrong every human metric that says this is what it means to belong they were violators of it. Do you think the, um, wh why do you think the Jews felt like they were being occupied by Rome? You think they felt like they were being occupied by Rome because they were righteous people and righteous people suffer in this world. Is that what the exile taught them in the Old Testament? No. 
They realized, Israel felt that what? The reason we're occupied by Rome, a foreign power, is because we are sinners. We are unrighteous. And God will not get us out from underneath this oppression. And it was oppression. God will not get us out from underneath us as long as we have unrighteousness in our camp. Now, there's some truths here we're going to talk about in a second. That's going to be really interesting and fun, okay? Wherever there's soldiers, does anyone want to take a wild second stab at what the second profession is that happens to follow soldiers around by any random wild chance? You know, it happens everywhere they go. You think that's accidental? No. Do you think those Jewish prostitutes who were prostitutes said, nope, I won't sleep with a Roman. I only sleep with righteous Jewish men. Do you, do you think that's how that actually went? <laughs> yeah. You see what I'm talking about here? Those prostitutes were selling themselves to Roman soldiers for money to keep themselves alive, right? And that meant Israel was prostituting herself to these foreign powers in a very literal way. And so the, the leaders kept trying to figure out how we can make Israel smaller so that maybe the righteous can actually get out from underneath this horrible terribleness, which is what they wanted to get out from, from underneath of. And Jesus had a different vision of that. Turn with me to Ezekiel. I mean, Ezekiel 34. I don't know how many of you have read Ezekiel. We're going to read a, a pretty heavy section here. And when it connects with you and Jesus, just kind of slip your hand up and slip it back down. A message from the Lord came to me. The Lord said, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Tell them, the Lord and King says, How terrible, terrible it will be for you shepherds of Israel. You only take care of yourselves. You should take care of your flocks. Instead, you eat the butter, you dress yourselves with wool, you kill the finest animals, but you do not take care of the flocks. You have not made the weak ones of the flock stronger. You have not healed the sick. You have not bandaged those who are hurt. You have not brought back those who have wandered away. You have not searched for the lost. When you ruled over them, you were mean to them. You treated them badly, so they were scattered. Because they did not have a shepherd, they became food for all of the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and high hills. They were scattered over the whole earth. No one searched for them. No one looked for them. Shepherds, listen to the Lord's messenger. He says, my flock does not have a shepherd. Many of my sheep have been stolen. They have become food for all of the wild animals. My shepherds did not care for my sheep. They did not even search for them. Instead, they took care of themselves. And this is just as sure as I am alive, announces the Lord, the King of Israel. Shepherds, listen to the Lord's message. The Lord and, and King says, I am against the shepherds. I will hold them responsible for my flock. I will stop them from taking care of the flock. Then they will be not able to feed themselves anymore. I will save my flock from their mouths. My sheep will no longer be food for them. The Lord and King says, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will look after them. 
A shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, and I will look after my sheep. I will save them from all the places where they were scattered on a dark and cloudy day, and I will bring them out from among the nations, and I will gather them together from other countries, and I will bring them into their own land, and there they will eat grass on the mountains and in the valleys, and they will eat in all the fields of Israel, and I will take care of them in the best grasslands, and they will eat grass in the highest mountains of Israel. There they will lie down in the finest grasslands, and they will eat grass in the best places in Israel's mountains. I myself will take care of my sheep, and I will let them lie down in safety, announces the Lord, the King of Israel. Does anything of this sound familiar at all, by any chance? This chapter, Ezekiel 34. I apologize, I thought I said Ezekiel 34. Okay, Ezekiel 34. And if you want to read, there's actually a whole lot more you can read about this. Right? Which says what? I am the good shepherd. Jesus was not making up that language. That language came directly out of the Old Testament. Where Ezekiel says what? You, 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 you don't know how to take care of the sheep. I'm going to do it. And then he shows up in Israel. And then he goes around and he tries to find what? What does he do? The lost sheep. He does what? Exactly what Ezekiel 34 says. Jesus tries to live this out. This is part of his mission. His mission is to restore the lost sheep of Israel. And guess what he does? That's what he does. And it has a tendency to make people nuts. Jesus going after the prostitute. Jesus going after the, the, the um, tax collector. Jesus going after the sinners. He said they belong in Israel. And what the, what the Pharisees kept trying to do is they kept trying to shrink Israel. They wanted to shrink Israel to only the righteous. That way, if those righteous stayed righteous, God would come and redeem them. Jesus had another model entirely which was, let's save them all. Let's get them all. Let's not shrink Israel. Let's expand it. This is why he goes to the Samaritans. The Samaritans were not even considered Jews. The Jews looked at them as enemies. Jesus doesn't look at them as enemies. How does he look at them? Like lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's exactly what he does. One last thing that we notice Jesus does. How many disciples does he pick? Twelve. Do we think that's just a random accident? Twelve tribes. What does that mean? Everybody's included. Okay. Including the ones that rebelled. Okay. Jesus is reconstituting Israel. He's remaking Israel. Just as Israel had 12 tribes before, Israel has 12 tribes now. Right? It's a restoration of Israel. He's redeeming Israel. He is restoring Israel to its former place. This is critically important for this reason. Because Jesus is redeeming Israel. He's bringing Israel back. He is reconstituting Israel with his 12 apostles. What does that make the Sermon on the Mount? 
his new Moses, his new laws. You see how this is working? Jesus is reconstituting Israel. He's rebringing every Israelite possibly back he possibly can. He's reconstituting her with 12 new tribes, right? And he has given them his new laws. And you can get those laws right out of Matthew chapter 5. Which means what? What's this have to do with citizenship? What's this have to do with belonging? We just talked about it, right? If you want to belong to any group. Anyone tells you, we don't have any rules. We don't care if you can join our group. Just come. We love everybody. Baloney. Okay? Baloney. Take a Klan's member to a Black Lives Rally map. Right? Black Lives Matter rally. Bring those there, and guess what? They're going to have selective criteria. Right? Bring a conservative to a liberal con congress. Right? There's going to be criteria. Every group has a criteria. Yes? The Arabs don't belong? Every group has selective criteria. The question becomes... What is our criteria, and is it fitting up with God's design for us? Because you're right. Every group makes selections, everybody. We can all pretend that we live in a world that doesn't have selective criteria, but that is stupid. It's just not true. It's right. It's a denial of reality, okay? So what you're seeing on the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is giving Israel her new commands, and the new laws that she is supposed to follow. So Jesus comes, and he deals with Israel not accepting all of Israel. Regular Israel, the leaders of Israel, not accepting Christ's message, not accepting Christ's mission. And he reconstitutes Israel, he gets 12 apostles, and he says, we now have a representative Israel. Let's take a, a moment and say and see how this works so you can kind of get what I'm talking about by a representative Israel. Who remembers the story of Gideon? Remember the story of Gideon in the Old Testament? I can look at our group here and I can kind of evaluate where we're at. Uh, part of my uh, idea here today was to start off in the Old Testament and kind of walk through the Old Testament. But I kind of look at our group and I kind of go, I think these people know the Bible. So <laughs> the story of Gideon, right? Where do, what is Israel in the midst of? They are oppressed by the group called Midianites, right? So Gideon is oppressed by the Midianites, and he's threshing his wheat in a wine press, right? And the angel of the Lord shows up to him and says, Oh, man of Israel, right? Oh, mighty man of Israel, as you're hiding in your, in your wine press, threshing your wheat, God has selected you to restore. Now, is Israel worthy of deliverance? No, because why? They are neck deep in idol worship, right? So here's the problem. How can Israel be fit and be deserving of God's restoration? How can Israel ever deserve to have God rescue them when they are neck deep in idol worship? So the whole idea is Gideon would have to go around and tear down all of the idols, you have to burn them all to the ground, hack them all to pieces, and then say, God, please deliver us, right? What happens? You know the story. Gideon tears down his father's idol, 
burns it and sacrifices it. And then God does what? Restores Israel. Was Israel actually clean? No. What did Gideon do? Gideon becomes a restorative type. Israel, Gideon becomes a stand-in for all of Israel. Because all of Israel can't get rid of idols. It's almost an impossible task. But Gideon, one person, can. Does that make sense? This is what, God, this is what Christ is doing with the apostles. The nations have been, the, the Israelites have been scattered to the winds. They are long gone. They've been, the northern kingdom's been scattered from here to kingdom come, right? The, the, the two little tribes, Benjamin and Judah, that are down, are down in Judah, those are the last remaining remnant, and that's it. So there's ten tribes that are just missing. How is he going to restore Israel? Well, he can't, unless he does what? He symbolically restores it. Just like the 12 tribes, just like the 12 tribes couldn't get rid of the idols under Gideon, Israel couldn't be restored in that way. So he selects 12 apostles, and they become the stand-in for the all rest of Israel. And that is the way that Jesus is restoring Israel to her place. The 12 apostles are restoring her and preparing her for our mission, which is what we're going to talk about tomorrow when we talk about Acts. Well, we're probably going to talk about the mission to the Gentiles, but we're going to prepare that for that uh, next week. Let's stop for a few minutes here and a answer some questions. We blew through a lot here. Let's, uh, let's take a few minutes and kind of work through this a little bit. How are we doing? I have a tendency to talk fast. I know that I do. So that's how we missed Ezekiel 34, isn't it? <coughs> he did. Right. And clearly. It, it's that same function. It's that same, rea it's that same use. Israel wasn't clean under Gideon. Israel hadn't got rid of its idols, so it wasn't deserving of God's grace. It wasn't deserving of God to pull them out from underneath the Midianites. Yeah, well, that's, it's a great model for that. Yes, actually. They never did. There's always, there's always this type of one person stands in for the whole group because the whole group isn't worthy. And it kind of is a continual pattern throughout Israel's history. And you're right. We do see that with Christ, right? Christ becomes a stand-in for all of Israel. Christ does for Israel what all of Israel can't do for itself. Right. Shrinking it down. Right. To God. Absolutely. Absolutely.
that's one way you can take it, is um, it really does feel like that, doesn't it? So Jesus came to restore Israel. He came to initiate a new covenant. And Jesus came to redeem Israel out from under the dark powers which controlled and manipulated them. Those are the three things that we can take away from this. It is really easy when you feel like you're being stepped on to shrink the borders, to shrink in. I mean, it's just, it's a natural human condition. Let's just shrink in. Circle the wagons. Preserve those who are left. Stay, stay in our walls. Let's not get hurt any more than what we already are. It's just a real temptation. It's a very human temptation. Right? Businesses, who do that all the time. We're going to shrink our business down to what we can handle it, not going to go out and we're not going to take any more risks because risks are dangerous. Jesus had a different model. He didn't shut down Israel. He expanded it. He expanded it so much that he included Samaritans, which really made those Jews nuts. Really, it did. That was a crazy thing to them. What does? Yeah, well, the, the revolt absolutely changes everything. Any other questions, comments? Because we're going to come back to this idea of belonging. We're going to come back to this idea of the way of life. Jesus initiated a new way of life. I didn't really touch on that a whole lot, but we're going to get on to that in the next couple weeks, couple days. Keep... I keep saying that because I run a Sunday school class back home and, and you know, it's every Sunday. So um, next couple of days, we'll be hitting these issues. Any other questions? Any other comments? How many have read Ezekiel 34 before? Does Jesus just jump out of that or what? Yeah. Jesus' mission didn't come out of his own head. It came out of the entire Old Testament. He believed he was fulfilling 
the destiny of what God himself had promised to do. Lord, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for this group that's here. Lord, we ask now that you would help us to be people who do not close our borders, but expand our borders. Lord, we ask now that you would help us to help bring back the lost sheep of Israel to your kingdom. We love you. We praise you. We are thankful for this opportunity to be here. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, so I know I'm a little early. It's supposed to be 10.15, but I'm going to give you another extra 15 minutes to... Uh,